Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Before I introduce our guest for today, I wanted to reiterate that if people are interested in having me start a support group for people in the UK, please let me know. And you can email me, actually, at BernsteinLMFT, F as in Frank, T, at gmail.com. Let me know if you are interested in participating in that, and I can send you the details once we have enough people to make it a nice formed group. And attendance is not mandatory because um, it's not a cult. So what I also wanted to say was that our numbers are rising in terms of the listens and the ranking of the podcast in many countries. And it's very exciting. And thank you also for making that possible by listening and by sharing it with others who you feel would benefit from it. Satpavan Kaur was born into the 3HO community and Sikh religion. She spent her childhood moving around to various 3HO communities, and at the age of eight, she was sent to India with 120 other children to go to boarding school, leaving her family back in the U.S. At the age of 16, she would be taken out of school to join YB's personal staff. YB are the initials that she uses for Yogi Bhajan, who was the leader of 3HO. It is hard for some people who have left to say his name, which says something about some of the things that took place there. So you'll hear her actually refer to him as YB. In the last couple of years, she has left the cult, but stayed within the greater Sikh community. She is one of the many women who was abused by Yogi Bhajan. She has had to unravel her life, the good, the bad, and the horror that she experienced growing up in the 3HO community, the abuse she was subjected to, the toll it took on her and her husband, and the clear choices she made to raise her children differently from how she was raised. She lives with her two children and husband of 27 years, raising her family and working hard to be a good person and do good in the world around her. Satpavan is also featured in the Vice documentary, The Dark Empire of Yogi Bhajan, which is available now. Here is part one of our two-part conversation. I am so happy to be talking to Satpavan today. I am very moved by your story by your life and that you still have a lot of life to live ahead of you and you're wanting to decide design how that life should be based on what you want and also in in a very healing way to have it feel different than the way it was before on I think almost every level it can be a scary time, but also I think an exciting kind of watershed time when people realize they can go their own way. So I would love for you to just spend a couple moments introducing yourself, who you are, what you do, what your life is like, and then we'll start telling your story. So go for it. My full name is Kevin Kaur Khalsa. And for a very brief time, I was 
born Sutpavan Car Erickson, and then my dad changed our name to Kulsa. I was born in 3HO, and I was also born into the Sikh religion. And I am just coming to terms with a lot of things that I've, for a long time, just decided not to see as a bad thing or or as something that I needed to evaluate. I'm just coming to terms with, you know, doing that in my own life, being a parent and taking more responsibility for my own self instead of kind of allowing others to do that, which has basically been a big part of my upbringing. I'm currently working for an online business, and then I also teach dance classes. I'm a parent, I'm married, and I still consider myself very much a seat. It's been a big part of my life, my whole life. And it's also been in a lot of ways, a saving grace for me um, in kind of coming to terms with 3HO and and how I was raised within 3HO. And I think really the, the seek part was like something that I can still hold on to because I still find something real there. So it's in some ways kind of kept me in 3HO, but also other ways it gave me a lifeline out of it. Right. I noticed as you were introducing yourself, that you said that you were raised in 3HO and also as a Sikh, as though they're two different things. And they are two different things, which I think people don't realize. And so I would like for you to spend a couple moments also describing 3HO. It was one of my first introductions into learning about cultic systems and people who I started working with in the 90s who seemed kind of shell-shocked. They they knew they had stories they needed to tell. They were afraid to tell them. They didn't want to betray the community. They didn't want to betray the leader, but they had been traumatized and they were in this in-between place of wanting to honor the organization, but still wanting to honor themselves and their emotions and the things that happened to them. And there are a lot of people who sort of started therapy and then would stop it. It seemed like it was just too internally conflictual. So I'm wondering if you can describe 3HO and how it's different. So 3HO, I guess, started in 1969. January 5th, 1969 is like the anniversary that has always been celebrated. So it was started by a man named um, Harbhajan Singh Puri from India. And he came to the United States and um, you know, I've always been told stories, but I've also been told stories directly from him or directly from the woman who was considered the mother of 3HO. I used to go on walks with her on a daily basis when I lived in LA. And she would tell me, you know, her experience. And I mean, the story was that he came here at the invitation of a high up person in the Canadian government. And I might make some mistakes in the story. I'm just going by the way that I understood it. So Maybe it's told differently by others. He did talk about this a lot in classes and stuff like that. He would go back to this and he would talk about how he came here at the invitation and he was going to be a yogi and help people within this community in in Canada. And that he arrived with $35 in his pocket and his luggage got lost. And that when he arrived, the guy that had invited him had died all of a sudden. And how he then had nothing and how I guess the $35 came from the airport for his luggage being lost. I would say that he probably did change the story slightly in different times telling it. So then the story was that it was wintertime. It was uh, the winter of 1968 and he had nothing and no clothes. And he was like scrounging through 
trash cans outside of bakeries and eating stale donuts. And then he made it to America. Now, again, I can't remember exactly how he got to America from Canada, but he did somehow make it to the United States. He would always say that everywhere in the world, they had different problems. This country has this drug problem. This country has this drug problem or this alcohol problem. He says, in America, you have everything. And so he felt like the place he needed to be was America because that was where drugs and the most problems were there and that he needed to be there to help people. And he talked about how he started sleeping at the YMCA in Los Angeles and then how he started teaching yoga classes and how he had been offered jobs to be like a personal yogi to all these Hollywood stars and how he didn't really want to do that because he didn't want to, you know, he wanted to work with everybody. He didn't want to just be someone's yogi. He started 3HO. My experience of 3HO as a child born into it was very much like you're kind of born into a, a family of people and you live in a communal home. And so you have your parents, but you're also like everybody in the home is your aunties and your uncles. And they're all there to kind of, they all have some kind of power over you as an adult to direct you or, you know, in that you basically have to listen to everybody. And there's a lot of rules and there's a lot of discipline. There's a lot of rules in the way you eat and the way you dress and the way you act and the way you talk and who you are associated with. You're basically given a family. So you're given friends based on the other children that are there. Those have just become your friends. And you don't really associate much with the outside world, but you do. You're out in the outside world, but you're still kind of not really out in the outside world, if that makes sense. So it's like you're going to school and yet you're not going over to people's houses that are not part of the community. You're not associating with them outside of the class. I had two questions, actually, when you said that, you know, so much is decided for you about how to behave and how to dress and how to eat. First of all, let's talk about the dress. People might not understand what the different guidelines are. And so to explain that and also how you're supposed to act and what that means and how that would set you apart, let's say, from the general population where exactly, as you say, you can be within mainstream society, but not feeling like you're or behaving like you're part of mainstream society. So the clothing and then the behavior. So go ahead. For the most part, we all were white. YB or Habajan or Yogi Bhajan would say that white represent all colors. And so we should wear white. And so white was the color that everyone wore. It was the 3HO color. But we called them, you know, as kids, we were told they were Khalsa colors, which in India, Sikhs wear all kinds of colors. But for Sikh gatherings and stuff, you'll see like navy blues or you'll see oranges and golds and stuff. And you'll see white too, not as much as you would see through a 3HO. And so we were allowed to wear Khalsa colors. So we could wear blues and stuff. It wasn't as common that you would see that. But, um, you know, and for more formal affairs, everyone wore white. It was kind of a makeshift of like Indian styles. The men were wearing kurtas, which is like a, a long tunic with churidars, which is like tight, stretchy bottoms. Today, Indian women wear, a, you know, an Indian suit is the, you know, kurta pajama or kurta and charidars. But like back then, before they started getting clothes directly from India, they would just kind of, a lot of them would make their own clothes. I know my dad had my 
grandmother make clothes for him. And my mom would make all of my clothes and just get patterns. And a lot of them, if you saw the patterns today, you know, kind of look almost Amish, you know, like these very long dresses and very, everything's very covered up. And, you know, the idea of like, wearing anything that was like showing your legs or, you know, a skirt without something underneath was definitely not something we did. You know, we were very covered up and then we all wore turbans and we all wore turbans in the sense that it was almost like a, a, like, you know, you're dressing up in a costume because like, I don't think that it was really clear from the beginning in India, the Sikh men wear turbans. Sikh women don't all wear turbans. There are some Sikh women that wear turbans. But when you put a turban on your head, there's like an understanding of what you're doing. And a lot of times people in India, um, in the Sikh religion, they'll, they'll make a decision to get baptized at a certain age. And so they're basically committing to not cutting their hair, living a more orthodox or a more, you know, stricter Sikh lifestyle. Whereas I think with VHO, we were kind of born baptized, but we weren't baptized, but we were born to live as if, you know, look and appear as if we were all these like perfect Sikhs that did everything as a Amrit Dari or a baptized Sikh would do. Mm-hmm. How were you supposed to behave that was different? Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard for kids to not just be kids. I mean, every kid in every environment, there's rowdiness, there's goofiness, but we were definitely had, um, you know, more, there was, you know, there was more rules around when that was allowed, you know? And I think that, you know, we did a lot, there was a lot of like meditation and a lot of, I'm using the term loosely, but spiritual practice. And in terms of that, you know, you're supposed to take it seriously. And so, you know, it's like you are rewarded for, closing your eyes when you're meditating, you know, not in the sense that you're physically rewarded, but you're told by people around you, they're proud of you, that you seem to really be an enlightened being. And our parents were really told that those of us that were born into it were more enlightened than they were. And so they kind of expected us to be these perfect beings or these perfect Sikhs, but then they had very little knowledge of how to kind of share any of what that meant. (laughs) So it was almost like they just had this expectation that we were already that we were born into it. So we were, our soul chose it. So we were already this perfection. And so you're kind of taught to be like that. And there was like all these little things that uh, YB would say to the kids. And there was like a list of things. I mean, we, some of them were told to keep them in our our pockets or wallets or purses and things like he would say, don't flirt, be alert. So you're being told from a very young age that the word flirt is a dirty word. It's a bad thing. And you're not really told what that means, but you're told that you shouldn't really be goofing off with boys or goofing off with the opposite sex or anything. You're kind of being raised to be these asexual beings. Showing any interest in a any way of someone is considered bad. And we were told to look at all of each other as brothers and sisters. So it's kind of like takes away from us being able to see each other as someone that we may be attracted to at some point. So, I mean, I think we were just raised in this very kind of, it's strange because it's very different from a lot of my Punjabi friends, but there are some similarities. There are some cultural things that why we put into the 3HO doctrine from his own upbringing 
But at the same time, you know, he kind of took it a step further and it was a confusing thing. We were taught to just basically we had very little understanding of how to just completely be ourselves because we were constantly being told how to be and how not to be. And, you know, when you go out, you're not supposed to represent yourself. You're supposed to represent everyone. And you're supposed to, so it's like, you have to be perfect and people should only see you as that way. And if you are upset or you're in a bad mood or you're, you know, have any kind of emotion that could be considered a negative emotion, that's not, it's, you know, just complete happiness. You shouldn't share that. You shouldn't share that part of it because that's, that's negativity. And you're not supposed to share negativity with others. You're only supposed to show positivity. So there's all these things that kind of, created this thing for a lot of our, for my generation, where we were not really knowing how to talk about our feelings or talk about things that were upsetting for us, because that would just be being negative. And so you tried not to be that, you know, and if you did talk that way, you felt bad about yourself or felt bad that you had done that. Very interesting. I'm glad that you're talking a lot about needing to behave a certain way and come across a certain way. And also the idea of modesty, because that's going to come back with full-fledged irony as you tell your story. So I'm wondering also just about growing up, being sent to different places and what it was like for you. I'm sure there's some stories that have stayed in your mind. And this is not to say that all your experiences were bad ones, but that the ones that were bad are the ones that we're probably going to need to focus on today. But I want to also get into your history in terms of just needing to deal with things on your own, sort of dealing with emotions on your own, finding yourself in places by yourself at a young age. So I think that would be interesting for people to hear about, about how much you just had to survive by yourself and address by yourself. And so Tell us a little bit about that childhood, those childhood experiences. So you can start wherever you'd like to. Yeah. So when my mother and I were dropped off in Connecticut, while my dad was then sent to Boston to get situated and then he would be sending for us, we were put in a place which was a, you know, an ashram. My mom was 21, pregnant with my sister. And I was just a year old and we had nothing. We had no money, we had absolutely nothing. And we were dropped off and we were supposed to be taken care of in this ashram. And the way that the ashram director ran it was that, you know, he had full authority over everyone that lived there and would give everyone jobs. And if you were an ashram director, most likely you were running your own mini cult. (laughs) You know, that's kind of how they were. To hear some of the first generation tell it, sometimes the ashram directors were even worse than YV because not as many people had such a direct connection to him. So their experience was living in an ashram and how they were being treated there. And so a lot of these people have nothing and then they're being put to work. Um, I think he had a landscaping company. So there's people and everyone's working for him for nothing, for basically room and board. And my mom was put as um, his wife's, you know, basically her servant. I mean, he was put, she was put as his wife's attendant and his wife was pregnant too. And my mom's job was to basically cook for her, serve her food, massage her feet until she was done, until she was like, you can go now. And during that time, I was separated from my mother and he had a thing where all the children had to 
be separated from their parents that were in the community, except of course, his two daughters um, that he already had, they were not separated from him. And they were often with him and got to see their mom whenever they wanted. But the rest of the kids, we were separated and sent off to whoever he appointed to be in charge of the kids. So all of a sudden, I'm coming from Florida, where I think when I was there in Florida, being a young child, I did get to spend, you know, have my mother with me. And all of a sudden, I was separated from my mother. And so, you know, it made me very emotional. And I was a very, I know I cried a lot. And my mom said a lot of times she would just see me at nighttime and I would already be asleep. And so she would just give me a kiss goodnight, but I would just already be asleep. And so if I woke up, they would come to get me. I would just start crying because all of a sudden I'd see her and I'd want her. And the director of the ashram, he would scream. I mean, my mom was like, he was really pretty horrible to a lot of people. And there was a lot of people that left that community because of the way that he was. But my mom was like, you know, he saved a lot of it for you. I mean, I was a year old and my mom has a lot of guilt about the fact that she feels that she didn't protect me from him. But she also was 21 years old and pregnant and didn't really know, um, you know, she didn't want to do something that could make him upset and then us be thrown out and be on the streets. I mean, she that's how she, I think, felt that she had to kind of put up with it. But he would scream at me and tell me that I was, a big, it had a huge ego and that I was obnoxious and that I was a brat and that I would never amount to anything. I mean, he was just very abusive with me and I would just cry and he would tell my mom that I was too attached and too emotional. And I grew up being told by adults my whole life, especially men, you're very emotional. You're very obnoxious. I wasn't someone that wanted to be quiet. I wasn't someone that wanted to keep my emotions inside and had a hard time with that. And so I was treated uh, pretty badly by people because I would let that show. And so when I was one, I was separated. And then we finally, we moved to Boston. And there, when we got to Boston, they sent me to camp in New Hampshire. And my parents were then working in Boston. My mom worked at a restaurant in downtown. And my dad worked at a shoe store downtown, which was all, you know, community owned. And I was sent off to New Hampshire and I was a year and a half. Then my parents only got to see me, I think, on Sundays. They had to go to Gurdwara, which is, you know, the steep worship service um, that was mandatory. And then they, whatever time they had left, they would try and get to this camp in New Hampshire where I was to come and see me. And again, it was the same thing. You know, she's too attached because I would just cry whenever they had to leave and it was only getting to see them for a little while. So yeah, I mean, these are not memories that are deep inside of, of me because, but I, my mom has shared them with me so often because she, whenever we are around each other for many years now, she'll bring this stuff up because she just has so much, you know, it just pains her and she just can't stop apologizing. And I, and I remember when my sister and I had our children and she just was so impressed that we didn't seem like we, like, even if someone asked us to send our kids away that we would have done it. And if we were like, of course we wouldn't. And she's like, well, we did. And we didn't feel like we had a choice and you guys are so much stronger than we are. And, and I just thought it was kind of crazy that she would even think that I would have, you know, if someone told me to do it, that I would have done it. But I think that's just the time that they were 
in and that's what they thought they were supposed to do. And they did. You know, the fact that you were having very natural reactions to things, but you were told that you were being too much of something. And there's so many times people will say the the emotions that I was having that turned out to be inconvenient for the leaders or the leadership or whomever were the ones that were pathologized, that there was something wrong with me because they they didn't want, I think, to have a reflection that was a negative one about what they were doing. Your your tears are holding a mirror up to what they were doing wrong. And instead they made you wrong for having your tears. And that probably repeated itself that you were blamed and then you couldn't assign blame to them. And really, I think after a while, even be clear about if they were doing something wrong or not, or if it was just your job to suck it up and be okay. Yeah. And I, I mean, I grew up for a huge part of my life thinking there was something wrong with me. I've always had that insecurity and my dad's family they're I don't, you know, I, I mentioned they're from new England. They're this big new England family and they're all very loud and in very emotional and very passionate. And I have a lot of that in me. And um, my mom is very quiet and very, she keeps a lot in. She doesn't share a lot of her emotions. And my sister was a lot like that. She was very, she still is where she doesn't, you know, she doesn't really share everything that she's going through with people. And, and I'm a lot more like, I want to scream about it. And so I was constantly being told, oh, you're really emotional like your father and your sister is really sweet like your mother, as if like it's a negative thing to share emotion and it's a positive thing to keep it inside. Right. And makes it so much easier for everybody else. But then you can get very disengaged from the self and not know really how to have a relationship with your emotions and to be able to take them seriously. It probably also would feel foreign if people did kind of take them seriously. So I'm wondering, you know, I know that there were some turning point moments of you needing to be on your own, et cetera. What happened after this, after this part of your history, what happened next that would be good for us to focus on? When my sister was born and I had very little emotional reaction to her being born, they let me come home that day and see her. And I walked in the room and they said, here's your little sister. And she's cuddled up in my mother's arms. And then I knew I had to go back to New Hampshire. And I just kind of looked at her, went, oh, and then walked out of the room and didn't show any interest. And my mom, you know, I think it really bothered her. And she just told my father after she, because you have to go through a 40 days after you have a child, which is another, it's, you know, a 3HO thing. We were always told it was something that other Sikhs did and and that it was even done in Judaism. And it's not a, a horrible thing to take 40 days to just connect with your child. It seems like a positive thing. But anyways, it was definitely part of the 3HO doctrine. And so my mom had to wait until those 40 days were up. And then she just said to my dad, let's go get Sapphub and I don't want, you know, I want her with me. And so they went and got me. It seems like, you know, after that, there was a period of time where, you know, I do have memories in Boston that were good. I do have to this day connections with people that I grew up with there. And then what happened was my mom decided she didn't want to wear a turban anymore. And, you know, she, she used to tell me I was never planning to 
take on any religion or anything. She grew up Methodist. She didn't grow up very religious. She said, I really was just looking for a positive thing in my life and everyone was doing yoga and that's how she got into the Shreya community. And all of a sudden she has a turban on her head and it was just like, she's like, you know, if it was just doing yoga and, you know, and having, eating vegetarian food, like I could handle that. But the whole religious thing was just not something she connected to. And my dad was the opposite. He was kind of came in because he was interested in Sikhism. And then he kind of saw like these Western Sikhs and said, oh, I can, I can learn through Sikhism through other people that are like me. And it became, you know, he, he kind of by mistake got into 3HO because he wanted to learn more about Sikhism. So when my mom decided she didn't want to wear a turban, the community in Boston just freaked out that, you know, the directors of the ashram decided that she was not a fit mother, that she was crazy. And which is the thing that happens to anybody that questions anything about 3HO. You're crazy. You're living in duality. You are just something's wrong with you. And so the directors of the ashram had money and they told my father, you know, we can get the best lawyers here in Boston and we will help you get full custody of your kids and, and we'll help you get a divorce. And that, you know, she's not a good example for your two daughters to be growing up with. So, you know, you need to get away from her. And, you know, my parents had an arranged marriage and they're very different and they really should have never been together in the sense that they just were not people, they didn't fall in love, you know, they were pushed into a marriage. So if I look at it as an adult, I can say it wouldn't be completely insane for him to agree to a divorce, but that wasn't what he was going to do. No matter what, this woman was the mother of his children and she was a good person and he knew that and he knew she was a good mother. And so what he did is we left, we left Boston and we left with nothing because they were getting paid $5 a week. You know, he had nothing. And my dad, um, he took me and my mom and my sister and took us to his great aunt's house in Maine. Uh, my great aunt Elizabeth, who is a big part of my life. You know, she's she's no longer alive. She was pretty old when we lived with her, but she was like, you know, she was like an angel, <laughs> you know, because we lived in Maine and it was just like immediately we got to just be normal kids all of a sudden, you know, we just, I, we, I used to take us to church and I used to sing and the church, because to me, I like to sing and I like singing in the Gurdwara. And so if we're, if I'm not going to Gurdwara and they're going to sing in church, I'll sing in church, you know, just, I want to sing. So um, actually the, the uh, pastor, I think said I was one of the most enthusiastic churchgoers he ever had. And I was, I think five or six at the time. So we lived there in Maine and my dad um, ended up dropping us off there and going back to Florida looking for work and basically um, sent for us when he had an apartment, he had a job, we could then come and get our lives together. So we just lived in Maine for, I think, the summer of 81. And it was great. It was a wonderful experience. And she didn't live much longer than, you know, because then I went to India. So I didn't really see her again, but it was always a special time that I, I have good memories of. And so then from there, we were in Florida and for whatever reason, the um, ashram that we had been in, you know, we couldn't live there. If there was, it was at full capacity. And so we ended up living in an apartment complex and upstairs at the apartment where family friends also had 
come from Boston. There, they had a similar thing where we all came into 3HO together, but they had already left 3HO. So when we moved into the ashram or into the apartment in Florida and lived with, and they lived upstairs from us, they had already left 3HO, but they were still our friends and they were still, we are still connected to them. And so, and the two daughters were in the same age group as me and my sister. We all had grown up together. So it was just fun to, to have them to like, that they kind of were on the outside, but they understood us. And so then we all went to regular elementary school. And then in winter of 82 was when we got a call from my godfather, my father did about this school in India and about sending the kids to school in India. They didn't mention my sister. It was like, let's send up heaven. And I think also my sister was much younger, but I think it was also like people kind of saw my sister as my mother's child. And I was the, I was the one that was going to change the world because I was the, you know, strong seat girl. And they talked to my dad about it. And my father was like, well, first of all, I don't think we can really afford to do this. And, um, and then the idea of sending me away to another country seemed, seemed like a lot to, to just make a decision on. And, um, my mom was against it. My mom was against it from the the time I went to India until I got back. And to this day, she still says one of the worst things that I ever allowed to happen was for you, you know, you guys to be sent to India. So she did not want me to go. And my father realized that, you know, he couldn't just send me without my mother wanting me to go. So he came and talked to me and he said, you know, do you want to go to India? And, um, you know, your mom doesn't want you to go. So if you can't convince her, then you're not going to be able to go. And I didn't, know what it meant to say, do you want to go to India? Except that it was just, do you want to go to where the Sikh religion is from? Do you want to go to the land of the gurus? Do you want to go to where the golden temple is? And so all of that was very exciting and definitely something I wanted to do. So I remember I would sit in front of a little altar I had in my room and I would chant and meditate and pray that my parents would let me go to India. And my mom just realized you know, the way she told me is, you know, I realized that you really wanted to go and that if I said no, then I, you know, you would be upset, with, you know, later on or feel like you missed out on something. So she let me go to India. And so I went in February of 83 and I had just turned eight. And so that was, you know, a very big, a big part of, you know, a big change in my life. You know, it's like I, I've always looked at the age eight as the time where I had to grow up. You know, that's like, I never thought of it as a negative thing when I would say that for years. Oh yeah, eight's the year that I became independent from my parents and I became an adult. It's like, no, you didn't. I was eight years old. And it wasn't until I started having my own kids and going, what was I thinking? How did my parents let me do this? You know, because I was so young. But yeah, so I went to India at eight and um, I had no concept of time. It doesn't, you know, I just didn't. And so when we got there in February of 83, we went and we lived in Amritsar and we lived basically, you know, at one of the houses, they're called Navas and one of the Navases that is connected to, to the Golden Temple. And we went to the Golden Temple a couple times a day and it was not the way it is today where it's extremely car- crowded and hard to get there. It was, you know, we could just go in any time and it was bliss. I mean, I, that one month in India, that 
February month was a great time for me. I don't have any memory of being sad or missing my parents or feeling any regret at coming to India. It was everything that I thought India would be. And then March hit, and now it's time to go to boarding school in Missouri, which is way up in the foothills of the Himalayas. And when we got there, that's when I cried. That's when I went, wait, I'm going to be here now. And when am I going to see my parents? Because you know, I didn't know what a year meant, you know, even though we're going to go to India for a year. I thought I had already been in India for a year. I thought a month had been a year. So it was, you know, that's when it hit me what was happening. And it, it was very emotional and hard. And so I ended up being in India from the time I was eight to 10 before I saw my parents again. And it wasn't unusual. The majority of us had that same experience because they used to just not even send the kids home. You'd have a, a winter because the way that the school was is it went from March and through, I think, the end of October. And the reason why is because once winter hits, you're in the Himalayan mountains. I mean, it's, you're basically snowed in. It's extremely hard to do anything. So they had school between March and October, and then you would have the three months off. In, in the winter. And what they did the first couple of years is we went somewhere else. So the first year, actually in 83, we went to Punjab and we stayed in um, Anand Prasab and Bandegar Saab, these different, you know, areas, you know, historical areas, really beautiful. And I actually really enjoyed, I loved all the traveling in India. So that was really nice, but I still did, you know, we, none of us got home. We, none of us went to see our families. And then there was, of course, you know, some families that had money that could come and visit their kids or just spend the entire winter program in India with their children. Because I think at that time, they weren't even encouraged at all to bring the kids home. It was just leave them in India. So if you want to see them, you have to fly to India. And so it wasn't until 85 that my parents got me home. And I, I don't know if it was also a financial reason. I'm sure it was, but it was also just kind of the way it was set up within the the community. And there was, you know, 120 kids there. And I think that's just how they did it. And I think after 85, they made it that every winter the kids would go home to their parents. So we didn't, we didn't travel as much. I mean, Punjab kind of closed because in 84 there was the assassination of Indra Gandhi and there was the attack on the Golden Temple. And so when that all happened, they just decided the kids should be home instead and it was safer. So then I would be home for three months in America and then fly back to India every year. So I did that. It was never um, and this thought in my mind that I never thought my parents were forcing me to go, but I also never thought I really could decide not to go. I was so scared to even think that I didn't want to go because it was just the culture. Like it was almost, you were almost ridiculed if you didn't go to India in our community from the, our generation and you were treated differently by the other kids. And if you didn't go back, is it because your parents are negative or there's something going on there? And so the idea of not going back just never dawned on me that it could be an option. But every year that I would go, I would cry for the entire plane ride over. <laughs> and I'd probably cry for like the first three days I was there. And then I would just kind of adjust again and deal with being there and then be excited to come back home. When I'd come home, I'd, I'd get in bed with my parents and I'd sleep in my parents' bed with them. And 
I never told anyone that because I always sounded, I, I always thought people are going to make, make fun of me. You sleep with your parents and like, you're 12, you're 13, you're 14. It's like, I didn't ever get, I wanted to just be with them because I didn't get to be with them very much. You know, I mean, we celebrated my eighth birthday and then I went off to India and then they never celebrated my birthday with me after that. So it's hard for me because I know I've talked to other kids and you know, none of us are kids anymore. We're all adults, but other people in my generation and they, there's a lot of, a lot of us that don't have really good relationships with our parents. And it's really sad. And it started just being separated from them. You know, you just didn't see them as someone that you could talk to. And I never thought of myself like that. I always thought I have a very good relationship with my parents. I can talk to them about everything. But I also know now, if I'm being fully honest, I didn't talk to them about everything. And I think that just based on how I was raised, you don't share negative things. You only share positive things. And so the idea of sharing anything that happened to me at boarding school that was scary or hard or traumatizing, you just didn't do that because that would be sharing negative things. And I also felt like a protector of my parents. I've always felt like I needed to protect my parents my whole life. I felt like I didn't want to tell them anything that would be hard for them to hear because I didn't want them to worry and be upset. So I had to protect them from that. So I I just have to take it because I don't want to hurt them. It's all very hard for me when I say it out loud. I'm just going, God, how how have I thought this way for so long? Right. You had this sense of duty, it sounds like an obligation, and uh, you couldn't question what was happening and you had to just deal with it and you couldn't be open with your parents. So there was probably just a lot of either dissociation or self-soothing. You had to find a way just to survive. So interesting that you were feeling protective of your parents. There are a lot of people who leave feeling angry at their parents in retrospect. And also sometimes, especially when they become parents themselves and they think I could never have done this to my kids. Not only could I not have done this to them to send them away at such a young age, but it would have been not only hard for my kids, but it would have been hard for me. I don't want to be away from my children for that long. And you can start to wonder why it was okay with your parents within a system where you think that this is what's best for your child spiritually for this life and others, then you go along with things and you kind of put your own feelings on the shelf. So I think there were a lot of people who are connected as parent and child, but not fully connected, not really able to also share in a lot of moments together and firsts together and have a lot of family pictures or home movies or just those things that mark a history. So moving into your teen years, these formative years of developing, you're trying to figure out, I think, who you are. There's a lot of identity formation during this time. And so what was happening simultaneously to you going through the emergence into teen life? What was your life like and what was starting to happen then? I don't know if this is actually true of everybody, but I do know that there are several of us that a lot of us had, you know, started puberty later. And I don't know if it's just I don't know. I don't, I'm not really sure what the reason of that would be. I mean, we were raised in this innocence. It's like, we wouldn't even recognize that those things were happening until they were happening, you know? So, I mean, I remember, you know, we wore these really thin school uniforms and in India, the school um, is still a school there that I went to. And they had 
the regular school uniform of the girls was white shirts, gray skirts, red sweaters, black shoes, and then your hair in like braids. Um, they would put them up like Kayla, which, um, you know, like they take the braid and make it a loop with, with ribbons. But somehow, you know, YB negotiated that the American seat kids would wear American or would wear Bana, which is like the Sikh uniform and was really at that point had become like the 3HO uniform, which was the kurta and stuff. So already we are going into a school and we're sitting separated from the Indian kids by the way we're dressed. You know, we weren't even wearing the same clothes as them. And so all the boys and girls wore the same kurta. Like they didn't have girls or more feminine looking outfits for the girl you know it was all the same and they were really thin and I remember being like 13 and somebody coming up to me going you need to be wearing a bra that's disgusting as if like I didn't really understand what was going on but apparently you know it's see-through and if you're having any kind of if you're developing at all you can see everything so I didn't even like it wasn't even on my in my mind to to do that I mean there was no sex education for us it was just basically stay away from from boys don't flirt dating is bad if you like someone then you need to stop liking them I mean it was just like you it was just you weren't allowed to do that and if you did do that you were being very rebellious and that was very you know seen in a way as a, as again as a negative to show anything outside of that and we were all told from a young age that we were going to have arranged marriages and I had the the person I married, I had had a crush on him since we were little kids. And I remember I would pray every day that I would be in an arranged marriage with him. So it wasn't like I even thought in my mind that eventually we can grow up and I can get to know this person and possibly, and it was more like, please let Yogi Bhajan see that I like this person and and that he'll arrange our marriage, Um, (laughs) which is really silly. So as you know, as we're getting older, you know, I can tell like a story with my, with my now husband, you know, he was a pretty popular kid in school and he, he had a a lot of girls that liked him. And, you know, it's not like we didn't have those things. It's not like we didn't have crushes on others. It's just that we weren't really allowed to do anything about it. And really, and we were pretty secretive about it. And you would tell, you know, your closest friend or something, but it just wasn't something that we openly did. You didn't openly date and it just wasn't allowed. It wasn't, it was frowned upon in a very big way. And so there was a girl who came over to India and she came over as a teenager. So she had been raised in America for a big part of her life at that point, whereas the rest of us had been raised in India since we were little kids. And she was just, you know, so different from us. You know, there was just, she was very forward about like talking about boys and she just was very fascinating because she was so different in the way that she related to things and and how we had been taught up until then how to be and she really liked my now husband and he liked her and so one of the things she did was she put she wrote his name on the back of her jeans oh which again we a lot of us didn't even start wearing jeans until all of a sudden our parents realized they couldn't stop us from wearing jeans but it was a period of time where like even wearing pants for the girls was completely not allowed. So a lot of the girls would like, if they had pajama pants, they would wear those and pretend they were wearing pants, you know, at camps and stuff, we would do that. But so she wrote his name just to announce to the world. And she said, you know, at the time we were kids, it was just like 13, but she said, you know, I'm putting his name so because I'm his. And she put his name on the butt of her jeans. And 
at the school, she was just treated horribly. You know, the the American teachers that were there, because the Indian teachers didn't really say anything to us about these things. But the American teachers that were there were, you know, they were the policemen. And they they were like saying she's not, if you're hanging out with her, you're not hanging out with someone good, you know, acting like, you know, there's something wrong with this girl. And she's, and she was being called a slut. And this is by the the, the guides. Um, she was being called all kinds of horrible names and, and you know, given a, a reputation at a you know, young age that she didn't really deserve. Whereas at the boys' school, they were kind of congratulating, you know, him saying like, wow, this girl's like, what did you do that you got? You know, it was, and I don't know, again, it, it, that's a cultural thing, to, but there was something messed up there where the girl was being treated horribly and the boy was being congratulated. But I mean, that's just how we were raised. So a lot of us that liked others, we were really secretive about it because we didn't want it to be found out and then be made to feel like this girl was made to feel. And um, and so we, we were very quiet. And I think in a lot of ways, tried to maintain an outward innocence. But there's some confusing things going on because we also, you know, we had books that would float around the school that we all would read. So whatever whatever the music was, it's like everybody listened. Heavy metal was a big part of our childhood, you know, because like the cool kids listened to heavy metal. So everyone listened to heavy metal. So we listened to Metallica and Judas Priest and ACDC. And I mean, Judas Priest to this day, I still think of like the song about parental guidance. That was like our theme song and for our kids. We used to sing that on class trips. If I can jump in for a moment, because I want to say something about this idea, you know, your friend getting ridiculed, being given a tremendously hard time for being open about liking a boy. But if a girl liked a boy, the boy was kind of given the pat on the back and a good job and congratulations. So that's not dissimilar from how it is in a lot of different environments that are misogynistic. And so women can't have feelings. If they do, they're a slut. If they do, they're they're called something. They they're a harlot. They can't be trusted. But for the the boys, it could potentially be this badge of honor. And it, that sets the stage, I think, for so much, or at least shows how the organization is run and the way an organization is run is from top down. So that's, that says something about Yogi Bhajan to me. And so I think that it's, it is very confusing among other messages that you got that were completely contradictory and also how much behavior management and behavior modification there was through fear and through fear of public shaming. So there's so much connected with that story that I says a lot about the things that you needed to deal with and try to make sense of and, and have to worry just also about having natural feelings that come up and what that means somehow about you. Yeah, so, I mean, we, we had, I mean, contradiction, that could just be the name of chaos and contradiction in our, our childhood. The books we were reading were, Either every Stephen King novel you possibly could read, we've read it, you know, everyone in my generation have read it, or Jackie Collins. Jackie Collins was a book that floated around our school and people read Jackie Collins. So it's very confusing to have all these visuals that you're reading and then also be raised in this very almost asexual environment and you're 
it's it just it causes so much confusion to like what is what is okay what am i allowed to openly share or show that i feel and um you know what do i have to hold deep down and there's no sex education the idea of our parents talking to us about those things i mean we weren't around our parents long enough for them to do it and they certainly weren't doing it at the school if anything they were just saying be good girls and stay together and again the girls the girls school and a boys school so we were already separated there and so you know all those things creates a lot of confusion in how to interact with people on on a in a relationship level or you know and how to understand how to act in front of people that are you know of the sexual orientation that you want to attract you know if you just feel like how do you be yourself how do you feel comfortable i mean i was always very very nervous of boys i mean i would start shaking just being around other boys because i was never around boys. <laughs> I didn't grow up around boys. <laughs> and I was, you know, kind of told that I'm supposed to stay away from them. And so that was scary. But then I also had this like inner, you know, turmoil of like feeling attractions and not knowing how to, how to deal with that. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of my friends that I think like, you know, the first guy that says the right things to you as you get older, you're like, oh, I'm in love because you never had that. You know, we never knew how to interact with boys that were complimenting you and you weren't and, and even in our own community we didn't compliment each other and we didn't compliment ourselves at all if you walked around and said i'm beautiful i feel really good about myself i mean god what an egomaniac what a you know what an obnoxious person that has no sense of that god is bigger than you the idea of feeling any kind of empowerment of yourself was constantly pushed down oh my goodness which probably still is carried over today in your inner thinking. If you are feeling good about yourself or do something that you can feel proud of, it's probably uncomfortable to think about it or to accept any kind of praise or a compliment. Yeah. I always say, I know how to help others figure out their own worth, but I haven't figured that out for myself. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. Moving forward, just with setting the stage for how innocent how naive, how separated from awareness of the body, of all of it that you were, that was an ideal. The, going back to you starting this conversation, talking about how the clothing had to be a form of modesty. So one would assume then that that's how the organization is run, that women are not touched and they don't engage in anything physical until the arranged marriage. And it's very different. It was very different for you and others. So let's talk a little bit about that. So when I came home and I was 16 and um, I had just finished 10th grade, I had, as every all of us had been, at, to were encouraged throughout our lives to keep a correspondence directly with Yogi Bhajan, you know, writing him letters and then you would get letters back. And so I knew that last year that I was there in 10th grade, a lot of the kids were looking at, some of the parents had come up with this idea to send kids to this military school in New Mexico, the New Mexico Military Institute. And so that was going to be a new option to not go back to India and to go to military school. And of course, I think it's a high school. So you'd have to be at a high school level to go. And so that was a new option all of a sudden that we had. And 
I knew that a large majority of my friends in my age group were planning to do something like that. And I didn't know if that was the right thing for me. And I, and I honestly, I just didn't know at that point, I'd been told my whole life what to do. And all of a sudden I, you know, I didn't know if what my parents were going to be able to do. And, and it just seemed kind of like everything was crumbling as I knew it. And I didn't really know where to turn. So I turned to him and I said, I let him know that a lot of kids are going to go to this school and, you know, some are going to go back to India, but not very many. And the other option is to finish high school in the United States, which again, we were told from a very young age and our parents were really hammered about how bad high school is in America and how bad school is in America and how it's just going to turn your kids into drugs and to they're all going to become prostitutes if they're girls and they're all going to become drug addicts if they're boys. And, you know, it's just horrible. And I remember there was a movie called Teachers with Nick Nolte and Yogi Bhajan would tell everyone, you have to watch this movie because this is what high school is like in America. And this is what, this is what I'm saving your children from. I don't know if that movie is a comedy or what, but I think I might've seen it, but anyway, <laughs> but I think it's supposed to make it look really bad. So I, you know, I went to him and, and from, you know, from a very young age, we were always told he is the ultimate person in your life that your parents are fucked up and your and people around you are all messed up. And that's why they are not raising you. And that's why you're being sent to India because they don't really know how to raise you. And they're really neurotic and they're all these things. And so there was this constant thing of being told how, how our parents are not the people that we should go to for direction and that we should go to him and that he is the one that loves us. And he is our grandfather and he is going to take care of us and he's going to give us direction. And so everyone went to him for everything. And he very much liked it that way. And I mean, even way beyond, I think, as I understand it, as somebody would, would have a priest or someone in their, in their life. I mean, they went to him for everything, for their marriages, for their children, for any health issues, for naming their dog, for <laughs> buying a house, for an investment, for coming into new money. That was always a thing that he always wanted to know about. But, you know, it was, uh, so it was completely the right, you know, that I understood it, the right thing to do, go to him, let him know, have him have a say in this. And so, you know, I said all of this to him in a letter and I kind of forgot about the letter. And then I got home from India and I got a, a plane ticket. We get a plane ticket that comes to the house with one-way ticket from Orlando to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we get a phone call from a member of his staff saying that he wanted me to go to New Mexico and be with him. And I thought that was amazing. And I didn't know what that meant. It wasn't like he said, don't go to finish high school at the time or anything. It was just come to New Mexico and be with me. And I remember my mom being a little upset privately, because again, you don't publicly say you're upset with him about anything, but she was just like, you just got home and now we're going to go out to New Mexico, like, because there's a summer solstice that always happens in New Mexico for the community. And that happens in June. And so my mom was like, why do you have to go out in April? Why can't you go out in June? It's just a couple months away and you just got home and we barely have gotten to have any time with you. And I remember my, me kind of being like, oh, you know, stop being so attached. It's fine. This is what he wants me to be with me. What a big, you know, honor this is. Why are you trying to and um, my dad talked to the staff member that had been someone that he had known for years um, early, you know, because she was somebody that we lived with in Florida when I was first born. And she was like, 
he wants her to be with him and don't you worry she's going to be well taken care of i mean she's going to be with him you know like this is like you have nothing to worry about you have no you don't have to worry about money you don't have to worry about anything cuz he's going to take care of her it was similar to me being eight and telling my parents you have to let me go and the way that you know the doctrine was your kids are enlightened beings and they know and if they want something don't stand in their way so my parents let me go and you know i just packed up my bags from india and i had a harmonium which is like a an instrument that i would play um uh, seek a uh, gurbani or kirtan on and um i had a sleeping bag <laughs> and i mean I, we didn't really know what it was that i needed to bring and i don't think i even thought i would need to bring a sleeping bag i think my mom was like no you should bring a sleeping bag because you're going to go to solstice and then when i we come visit in the summer when we can camp, you know, so I brought the sleeping bag. I get to New Mexico and I get picked up by someone who I didn't know. And they were saying, you know, I'm here to pick you up. And they, and Yogi Bhajan's name wasn't even mentioned. Like I'm not here on behalf of Yogi Bhajan. It was, I'm here to pick you up almost like an irritation. Like I was a job for them to do. And they didn't really you know, I was trying to connect with them. And I think one of the things I've always tried to do, and I don't know, I think a lot of it is my feeling of always being in survivor mode my entire life is trying to find common ground with whoever I'm around and find a way for to connect with them so that they like me and they are invested in making sure I'm okay, <laughs> you know? And so I was trying to do that, you know, asking about their family, trying to connect with them. And she kind of started to like open up a little bit about that she had a child and kind of telling me a little bit, but that was the end of that. And she drove me to Española, which is like a two hour drive from the airport and drives me over to a trailer. And there's all these trailers. And I, and I come from Florida. I'd never even seen like this kind of rural looking makeshift thing of all these trailers. And it was a call security and a call security was, was a big company that the community owned a big security company and yes it was all in trailers with people being paid nothing <laughs> and uh that's where the corporate office was and um i was brought into one of the trailers and they said this is how you answer the phones there was like five different number or five different lines and if the sixth line is yogi bhajan's line so if that line calls forget all the other calls you have to get that line you can never make him wait you know always pick up that and i was still kind of like i remember still thinking like what am i doing here what's going on cuz no one was telling me anything and it was almost like they thought i knew what was going on i mean i think they did think i knew and i didn't really know and i said so am i just supposed to do this today and then i'm going to see him and they were like, well, he's in California. I don't know when he's going to be back here. And I was like, well, what am I supposed to do? And they're like, well, you're the new receptionist. And I was like, I am? <laughs> I was it. I was the new receptionist at a call security. And I had no, I didn't know any of this going in. My parents didn't know any of this going in. I mean, they were told she's going to come and be with him and how lucky that is. And I kind of was in a daze that first day, answering phones, trying to not mess up, probably hanging up on people and, and just kind of trying to figure out in my head, what is going on? And it really goes back to another part of the three age doctrine is that everything is a test and everything is a test that you have to figure out how to pass. 
And that is where my mind took me is this is a test and I have to figure out how to deal with this. And I have to figure out how to pass this test and how to, how to make this all work and not complain, not ask questions. And that's another doctrine is he would say where there's love, there's no question where there's question, there's no love. So really setting you up for don't ask questions if you love me. And if you don't love me, that's when you'll ask questions. So there's no questions allowed to be asked. And I was just really confused. And everyone there seemed just kind of like rushing around and, oh, you're the new receptionist. Hi. And there was a couple of people that were nice and came over. And there was actually two people that I had gone to school with. They were older than me, but I'd gone to school with them. And they were came over and said hi to me. So that made me feel a little bit good. Like, okay, at least I know these two people. And then in the evening, I was just there and I had my luggage with me and I was kind of like, not sure what was going on. And like, where am I going to stay? And this lady comes over, she's wearing an occult security uniform and she comes over and she says, she introduces herself to me. And then she goes, you know, I don't usually get along with people under five, nine and I'm five, seven. So, okay. I guess she just told me we're not going to get along. I didn't really know why, you know, what that meant. And then she goes, well, you're going to be living with me. And I'm just thinking, oh my God, I'm going to live with this woman who basically just told me there's no chance we're ever going to get along. We drove in silence to her place, which was actually one of the houses that were part of Yogi Bhajan's houses, but it was an unfurnished home. I mean, it really had like a couple plastic cups and bowls in the cabinets, like And I don't think there was any furniture anywhere else. And then she took me to a bedroom and there was a box spring mattress with no sheets or anything on it. And luckily, you know, my mom had been forward thinking and I had a sleeping bag and I think I even had a towel and she just went into her room. I heard it click, lock the door and I'm just sitting on my bed and I'm just like, and again, there's, this is in the early nineties. I had no phone, no way to call my parents. I still haven't told my parents. I'm even, you know, everything's okay. I made it to New Mexico. (laughs) So I like nothing. And I just thought, okay, I just started feeling really emotional. Like I'm just going to start crying. I don't know how I'm going to handle this. And I just thought, okay, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to just start singing because that will give me some sense of protect, you know, safety, something. And she bangs on the wall and shut the fuck up. And I remember just sitting there going, where am I? What is going on? You know, what test is this that I have to pass? What happened that I karmically brought this on? You know, is she like the good person in this scenario or am I the bad person? You know, who, who, what's going on here? I was just trying to uncover everything and not really knowing what was going on. And so I ended up again, like spending the next two weeks in a complete daze. I mean, I don't have any recollection except one time when she, out of the blue, invited me to watch a movie with her. And I went into her bedroom and it was fully furnished. I mean, it was, you know, had everything. And um, she had been a model and an actress uh, or, you know, this is all through her telling me. And she had German heritage. I don't know if she was originally German or what, but that was a part of her identity that she shared. She had been married to a pretty famous musician who was like in the Blues Brothers. I'm just trying not to name names, but, you know, because I just don't want to. But 
you know, so she's kind of telling me about her life. She had a, a son from her marriage and and I said, you know, so what happened? She's And she said she was in love with her husband, all these things. And I said, well, you know, why aren't you married? And why aren't you with your son? And she said, because why be? You know, I'm with him. And I didn't, uh, Any every time someone told me this through my life, I never understood what that meant. And so when she said that, it just sounded like I'm just going to, I've decided to drop everything and become a Sikh. That's how I my mind interpreted it. And that he's my spiritual teacher. And she said that she gave him everything and that she gave him in her entire bank account. And she lived in the Hollywood Hills. She gave everything over to him and that he allows her when he, when she's a good, when she's good, this is all through her telling me when she's good, he allows her to have some of that money and she gets to go on a shopping spree or something. This seemed very strange to me because through everything I had lived up until now, this just seemed so different from all of that. And I was just really confused. But when she invited me into her room to watch a movie, we watched a movie that I can't remember the name of the movie. I remember that John Malkovich was in it. I'm pretty sure it happened in the, it was like in Turkey or somewhere in the Middle East. So it was this is in 1991 that came out. Anyway, I just remember there was a lot of nudity in it. I remember a pretty graphic sex scene. And I was really shocked. I'd never seen anything like this in my life. And I was extremely just kind of like, I remember just taking my eyes off the screen and kind of looking around her room and looking at different pictures in her room. Cause I was just like, I don't want to watch this. And I thought like, I don't really want to be in here right now. I don't want to watch this movie that I'm not really interested in. And I'm and I don't really feel comfortable with her. So I don't really want to be here. But it almost made it seem like, you know, she had so nicely invited me that I couldn't get out without her permission. And so when the movie was over, she said, okay, well then good night. And I realized, okay, she's kicking me out. Okay, good. I don't want to be here anymore. And I left. And so again, that two weeks is a daze, but I do remember that. And then I was sitting outside one day having lunch and uh, a lady comes up to me and she's like, stop puffing. And I look up and she's like, she tells me her name. And she said, I knew you when you were a little girl in Boston. And it was just that just hearing that someone knew me and knew my parents, it just all of a sudden I just burst into tears because the sense of like feeling that somebody is close to home, somebody is like, in some way, like an aunt to me that I, cause I felt very alone in New Mexico and the community. I didn't really feel like I was, I had connected with anyone or anyone really knew who I was or knew my parents or anything. And I just started crying and, and she was just really nice to me. And I told her my situation. I said, I'm living with this woman. She's very, she's not very nice. She doesn't really seem to want me there. And um, I'm just very uncomfortable. And she said, you know, I just had a child. Why don't you come and live with me? And I'll talk to my husband and you could live there in exchange for helping me out with household work and babysitting and stuff. And I was like, no, that sounded like bliss. That sounded so wonderful to me. And so I just, I don't even think I told the woman that I was leaving. I just got my bags and left. And I went to this other house, which was, you know, a much warmer house from where I was coming, fully furnished. And they said, I had to, she said, well, I talked to him and you can sleep on the couch, but you have to, 
you can't make a bed on the couch until he's ready to go to bed. And so if he's watching TV, you can't, you know, he doesn't want really want you to be in his space and you have to have everything cleaned up before he comes in the room in the morning. And I was like, okay, if that's what I have to do, that's what I have to do. And I, I did, you know, do my thing where I tried to connect with him and learn about him. And he's telling me how his, he inherited all this money recently and how his family had like, was part of like a, you know, one of the first computer chips inventors or something. So that guy quickly went from being kind of a nobody to one of YB's main guys. And to this day, he's a hardcore supporter of YB's. And so I was there for a very brief time because he didn't really want me there. And he told his wife, you know, I want her out after a short time that I was there. And so she's like, I think it was Wednesday. She said, you know, you have to be out by Saturday. I'm so sorry. I hope I'm telling you with enough time to find another place to stay. I never told my parents all these things. I'm homeless in New Mexico. (laughs) I'm trying to find a place to live. I'm trying to find a couch to sleep on. I never told my parents that because everything in my mind was you don't complain. You don't tell anyone anything bad. And it's a test and you make it you figure out how to survive, you know, and that's what I did. It's incredible. People can get away with anything if they don't tell you exactly what they have in store for you. They make it sound like something that it's not. And then they train you to not complain about it and also to see it as a test, as you're saying. So then anyone can get away with doing things to you that then you are not supposed to be angry about, you're not supposed to uh, protest, you're not supposed to complain about. Imagine uh, if instead of being told that YB wanted you with him, that you were told you're going to be going to this place in the middle of kind of what's going to feel like nowhere in comparison to where you've been. And you're going to be used as free labor as a receptionist for a company. And YB is not even going to be there. Mm-hmm. I know. I don't think my parents would have ever allowed me to go, you know, and they've said that my my father says that to me uh, on a regular basis. When we talk about these things, he's like, you know, if I had known something, and I never would have allowed you to go. And I know that he's right about that. Um, But we were never told and everyone was told to trust him. And we did. And that's just how we did it. It's not until right now in my life that I'm going, okay, I can see I shouldn't have had to go through those things. I knew deep down that it was angry in my life about these experiences, but I never blamed him. Never. And I never really knew who to blame. Um, I was kind of angry at the community, but I never really like put a name on anybody for that. And I just didn't, I didn't know how to blame. Cause it was kind of like, that's in the past, stop getting wrapped up in it. But if I was talking to someone and they said, Oh, I, I left home at 16 and I was like, you know, living on the streets. I'd be horrified without any understanding that was me. (laughs) And I was not homeless. I had parents that loved me with a nice home. My parents had actually bought a really nice home by then. My mother had house cleaned our our entire lives. And they actually moved into a home that my mother had cleaned before. I mean, it was a pretty nice place. It was like, I had a pretty good little life that I was, there was no reason for me to be taken out of that life. No, no, no reason at all. And to be suddenly in a sleeping bag somewhere and kicked off a couch and then then another. So tell me about when YB came back and what happened then. From the house that I was, I ended up convincing a friend of mine who I'd gone to boarding school with, who's still very 
good friend, a very good person, you know, I letting her know, I not in a, like we were talking about it very recently. And she's like, you know, I had no idea. And I said, I had no idea, <laughs> you know, but I just said, is there a way I can stay with you? I can't live here anymore. And I'd rather just stay with someone I know. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to, uh, you know, and she just told her parents, Sub Hubbin's coming to live with us. And they didn't seem like they were super thrilled about it, but I think that they just accepted it. And she had two little brothers and I just moved in with them. And so I had been living with them for a couple of weeks, I think at that point. And then YB came and he called for me. And when he called for me, all of a sudden, I became very important to a lot of people because, you know, he was giving me direct attention. He was like, where's Sub Hubbin? I want to speak with her. I want to see her, bring her to me. And so I was brought over by my friend's parents to the ranch where he was in New Mexico. And um, I got walked into the room and I was, uh, and there was, the room was full of people. Everyone's looking up and all the tension is on me and he's talking directly to me. And the first thing he says is, I heard you wanted to be an actress, which is something I had wanted to do my whole life. You know, I'm a very emotional person. I'm very passionate. I think I can do it. But anyway, I said, yes. And he just started yelling at me and telling me, how could I choose such a fucked up profession, you know? And one of the staff members is sitting next to him and she's like, you know, she's actually really good. I've seen her in, you know, cause I had done any time there was an opportunity to do a skit or a play in the community. I was always like, I'm doing it or whatever. So, um, you know, she had seen me perform in a, a skit and she's like, you know, she's actually really good. And I mean, she actually has some real talent and he's like, Oh, shut up. I'm, you know, he just yelled at her and told her to shut up. And, she starts, and so he starts screaming at me and he starts telling me that I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be like the biggest prostitute in the entire world and that I'm going to be gang raped on a regular basis. And I, I, this was just mind blowing because this was my spiritual teacher. This was my grandfather. And this was also someone that I understood had created the entire, the entire lifestyle that my, that I was being raised in. You know, we didn't cuss. We didn't talk about sex. This was the first time I I was like, you know, what have I done that this person is doing all this stuff with me? Like, it was so strange and so different from everything I had been taught. You know, I had been taught he was this very enlightened being and he was so loving and so kind. And so, and my experiences of, with him up until then seemed to be fit that, you know, in the sense of very limited things of different times of my life. So to all of a sudden be screamed at and, you know, sexual acts described in very, very um, vivid ways was really strange. And I just cried and cried and I just stood there in front of everybody. And there was no one except this one person that seemed to blink an eye at it. It was kind of like, where am I? I mean, I was like Dorothy going, I'm not in Kansas anymore. I was like, this is the norm now. And everybody in this room is letting me know that this is acceptable what's going on. And so this one member of staff who she kept interrupting and saying, she's a very innocent girl. I don't think you should be talking to her like that. And she was close enough to him. You know, now I know that how close she really was, but she was close enough to him that she could talk like that. And I was even shocked at how she talked to him because no one talked to him like an equal, you know, but she was kind of like, she was calling him sir, but she was like, sir, you know, you can tell she's very innocent. She's very young. Why are you screaming at her? Why are you cussing at her? Why are you talking about all this sex stuff with her? And he's like, shut the fuck up. You know, he just starts yelling at her. And she 
um, just stood up and she's like, I can't take this anymore. You know, if you're not going to stop talking to her like this, then I can't be in the room because this is making me angry. And I remember her walking out of the room and I'm like, just watching her going, don't leave. Like you're the one person that's getting him, you know, telling, interrupting him and telling him to not talk to me like this. And so that evening I was just crying and I was shaking. And I basically just felt like every dream I had in my life, if I tried to achieve any of these things, it was going to be the worst thing for me ever. And I, my life was just going to be horrible. Like everything that I thought I possibly could have was just washed away in that moment. And I was just crying. And the parents of my friend were like, this is what he does. This is an honor. You don't understand. He only yells at the people he loves the most. Like what an honor that he's screaming at you. That means that he really loves you. That means he really cares about, you, you know, for most people, he just doesn't even tell them anything, but he's so, he's being so direct with you. And I was like, okay, I guess, you know, I just was so confused. And so that happened three days in a row. <laughs> of just being screamed at and yelled at. And so after three days of being told what my life would be like if I did anything that I wanted to do, I was then said, or you can be with me and I'll take care of you and you'll be the wealthiest. You'll be treated like a queen. When you walk, people will be like in awe of your, of your regalness, of your beauty and I just immediately went, okay, I'll be with you. Cause it was just like, you just painted the worst scenario, you know, worst case life for me. And so if I'm going to, that means I get to be with you, I'll be with you. And it was just like, it was like so fast. And then he changed his tone. It went really soft. And he's like, what a beautiful actress you would have been. You would have been an Academy Award winning actress. I'd wanted to be a, a stage actress, which obviously didn't really seem to want to know anything more about the fact that I want to be an actor. But anyway, you know, he started talking about all the awards I would have won. It was just kind of like, you know, at, even at the time I was like, what is he, is he telling me I made the wrong choice or is this another test? Like, what does this mean? And so um, I remember he was very like sweet and loving and had me give him a hug. And then afterwards, it was just like, he was done with me. He, he had broken me, had gotten me, he had won me over, you know, and I look at that now and see that, but I, then I just didn't even know. And it was like, okay, now you can go, you're done, you're done here. And I'm done with you. And so my life continued on working at a call security for a period of time until he just called me and said, I'm sending you to Los Angeles, you know, and he would always call me actress, you know, actress, I'm sending you to Los Angeles because you want to be an actress. So now you should go to where all the actresses are and actors are. And you'll see how he's like, I'm sending an angel into hell. You're so innocent. You're so naive and you're going to go there and it's going to eat you up. So then I got another ticket that he gave me and I flew to LA and I was picked up at the airport by this woman. And she said, you're going to be living with me and I have you now. And you're going to be, I'm in charge of you and your life is mine now. And it was just another situation where I'm like, what's going on again? I'm not with him. I'm with, I'm in another thing that I didn't know. And I got to the house and she, um, I wasn't going to live in the main house. They had the, a pretty big house in LA and, uh, they put me in a, in their garage, which they had made into a makeshift bedroom area. And so I lit, I just, you know, had this sparsely furnished bedroom and inside their garage. And they were like, you know, this is your home. Come eat here. I didn't, I never felt comfortable. The very first day I was there just to feel like a sense of home. I put on 
the TV in their living room. And I thought I would watch, ironically, the Cosby show, which I grew up on. And I put that on. And I remember she goes, do we have to watch this? I mean, they're so black. And that was like, just the chill going down. I was like, where am I? I'm supposed to be in a steep household that are supposed to be like accepting and loving of everybody. And you don't, you know, and every diverse, you know, it's like, I grew up thinking, you know, I grew up in India, brown people. I was like, what? Black, black is bad in this household. It really freaked me out. And so then I ended up being basically her slave for um, the next eight months that I lived there. Um, she had a preschool and I had to go and open the school, close the school, make all the lunches, change all the diapers. You know, I did everything. A lot of times I'd work 12 hour days and she paid me $50 a week. You know, she just basically owned me. I mean, she, I had no, I couldn't do anything without her permission. And, um, it's very interesting because she recently passed away. I just found out. And, I usually am able to go when someone, I hear someone died, I'm usually able to try and remember something really positive about that person and, you know, feel some sense of, you know, sadness. And I think I feel sadness for her family because there's definitely people that loved her, but I don't have any sadness about it because I can't think of anything good that she did for me in my life. If anything, she just was a tormentor and it was miserable and horrible to live with her and, she was this person that he sent children to. And I would love to know the reason why he would pick her of all people to be this mother to other children and why she ran a preschool in the first place. She was not a nice person. And she didn't have like really any kind of like emotional care about people. But anyway, so it's weird. It's weird to, to have that reaction and realize I don't actually feel sad. I kind of feel like, a monster died and I, I'm okay with that, but I feel bad saying that out loud because again, she had family, she had a daughter, she had, you know, obviously people that loved her, but she was not kind. So from there, you know, during the time that I was there, he had me um, go over to his house or I was, you know, he, it's again, he didn't directly tell me to, but I was got, I got a call that, you know, during the day you're supposed to go over to his house and clean the house. And so I had to go on my lunch break because this woman wasn't like, oh, you know, you have to go over there. So that's part of your work. It was like, you still have to get all your chores done. She would say, here's your list. You have to have everything checked off, but you still have to get over there and do that. And I had to walk there. I didn't have any other means of transportation. So I had to quickly walk a ways to go over to where he lived and clean over there and then come back over and do my chores for the school. The very first experience that I had with him that kind of started everything was that I was there and I was cleaning dishes and I was hunched over cleaning dishes. And, you know, I felt someone come up behind me and put their hands on my chest and pull me towards them. And I kind of jerked, of course, and I looked back and it was him. And he said, I'm telling you to stand up straight. And then he kind of just like felt down my body. And he said, you know, be proud of this body, be proud of this breasts and be proud of these hips and be proud of being a woman. So I kind of just took it exactly as he said it, you know, don't hunch over, be proud of who you are. And I didn't take it as a, an assault or, or a negative because immediately it was, you know, there was some reason behind it that he gave that I, I accepted. And I also, you know, I saw him as a non-sexual being. 
Um, I saw him as someone who gave up his lifestyle or his, you know, gave up his relationship as, you know, he was still married his entire life, but I saw someone as like gave up his family life, gave up his, you know, everything to be serving humanity and that he was willing to just like let go of these kind of like I keep thinking of like the Indian words like Maya, but like, you know, let go of these like worldly attachments. There's another thing that we would be hearing. But, and so I didn't see him as someone being sexual. So I didn't see that as threatening, even though I knew it felt weird and uncomfortable. I just commute, like allowed my mind to quickly, you know, make it make sense of it. And so then what ended up happening was he said to me one day when I was there, he, you know, started spending more and more time when I was there, he would come and talk to me and spending more and more time giving me attention, which always felt very nice, you know, to getting attention directly from him. And he just said to me one time, it was my 17th birthday. And he's like, it's your birthday. I I have a present for you. And I was like, oh, and I thought he's going to give me something, you know, I don't know what he's going to give me, you know, something. Right. And he said, how are your parents doing? And I said, they're fine. And he goes, have you asked them lately how they're doing? And I said, well, I just, you know, I talked to them yesterday. They're doing fine. And he goes, I need you to call them up and say that I asked, say, you know, Yogi Bhajan said to ask you how you're doing. And so I said, okay, I thought that was strange. So I walked back over to the school. The kids were still sleeping and they're taking their nap. And I thought, okay, I'll make a quick phone call to my parents, ask them how they're doing. And then I can you know, I won't interrupt my work. And I called and my mother's like, we're doing fine. And I said, well, I know this sounds strange, but I'm supposed to ask you, he's asking me to ask you like, I, you know, and she goes, oh, okay. I guess we're supposed to tell you now. Well, your father and I are planning to get divorced. (laughs) And it's like my entire world, just like, it's just like, oh, I mean, I was just standing there shaking and like my whole world was just falling apart. I was like, what? And my mom's like, yeah, so this has been a year coming, but he's told, everyone knew apparently, my sister, everyone knew except me that Yogi Bhajan had told my parents, do not tell Sapabin. You have to keep this from her because I will, I, I will take care of her. And so they trusted that just because that's what they did. And, and so I remember just standing there and going like, what? And just crying and being so sad and upset. And it's like trying to figure out what to do. And the kids are waking up from their nap and they're coming over and they're like, stop coming, what's wrong? And I was like, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And I'm crying and, and they're like hugging my leg and they're like bleary eyed from waking up. And, and I got off the phone and my mom's like, you know, I can tell that you need to get back to work. Let's talk about this later. I'm really, so, I'm so sorry. So, you know, she was crushed. I knew she didn't want to hang up. And so we hung up the phone. And then of course I got yelled at by the lady for doing a personal call, how unprofessional for crying at work. I mean, just you name it. I got yelled at for it. And so, you know, my parents ended up getting divorced that he kind of put the whole thing together and immediately engaged them both to other people who they're both uh, married to to this day. So those marriages did end up working for them. And I spent the first couple of months just in tears every day. I felt so alone being in LA. I felt like so alone from my parents. I felt like my parents had let me down. I felt like everything in my life was just crashing to a halt. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I felt suicidal. I felt just, I just felt like I didn't know how to put into words how I felt really. I just, I couldn't open my mouth just and talk without 
starting to cry or turn red in the face or feel like I was going to fall over. So YB had classes three days a week and he would come over to me at the class. He would, at the end of class, he would always come right over to me and start talking to me and giving me all this attention. And as soon as he gives you attention publicly, everybody's kind of giving you attention because you're now seen as like someone special to him. And so a lot of people were being really nice to me and and all this stuff. And then, and then he was like telling me that he wanted me to come over after class and see him. And so I was like, oh, and people were like, after he walked away, they're like, oh, that's, you know, I'll, you know, one of, one of the people there was like, I'll drive you over. Oh, what an honor, you know, only very few people get this honor. And so I thought, okay, this is amazing. And, but I was also, you know, having, I was just really emotional and um, I go over there and I was told that the very first night I went over, I sat down and I was fed food and I was kind of treated the way everyone was treated, but I wasn't treated like that from that day after. From that day after, I was kind of in charge of serving food to everyone else. And then he kind of like let me know that I was on his staff, that I had been on his staff since I first came to New Mexico. And I was like, oh, okay. So, and that everything I had done up until then was he knew about and that I was, I was a good girl and I was passing these tests. And so I just thought, okay, it's all right. He does know what's going on and he isn't on top of everything. And and I am, you know, I'm proud of myself. I'm, I'm holding it together. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm passing these tests. And so we're sitting there and he just turns the TV on and he puts on this show called Real Sex. And all of a sudden there's like people just having sex, you know, like just very graphic. And I just remember just being like, what? You know, it's really weird. I'd never seen this to this, this way. And I got one time the, with that other lady and it was like, too much. And that was a movie. So it wasn't at the same level as this. And I turned immediately turned red, beat red, and I put my head down and he turned the TV off and he said, you need to look up, look up, watch it. And I was like, you know, sir, I don't want to, it's, I don't, I don't really, I don't want to. And he's like, oh, you're so innocent. You're so naive. You're going to, you need to watch it because this is going to help you not be like that. And then he's, he said he wanted me to tell him what I he put it back on and then he paused it again or turned it off again. And he's like, tell me what describe to me what you just saw. And I was like, it's yucky. Like <laughs> that was the term that I used. I, I was like, I don't want to describe to my grandfather's spiritual teacher, graphic sex. I don't want to sit in the room with him and watch this. I don't want to sit in the room with anybody and watch this. He wanted me to describe what I was seeing and how it made me feel and what I thought sex was and stuff. And I, you know, again, there's a room full of people here. And I remember kind of saying, why are you asking? I kind of was like, why are you asking me? I'm a virgin. Like everybody else in the room or there's married couples, like ask them. So he did end up, you know, finally taking the pressure off of me and start, you know, having other people give their descriptions. So again, that also normalized the whole thing as to be like, okay, this isn't weird. And he then went on to say how he was in the middle of writing a book with his medical doctor who was in the room and his and this other woman who was a therapist. They were both in the room. They were always in the room through all these times that this happened. And they were apparently writing a book about sex. And so this was just research. And this was like normal to watch this on a regular basis because it was all research. There was not one person that set an alarm off that 
maybe she's too young to be in the room or maybe she shouldn't be here. There wasn't anyone saying that. If anything, I was being told how lucky I was to be one of the very few selected people to be this close to him and and get to have these personal experiences with him. And to think also there are people there, this person with an MD and another person who's a therapist and not that you need credentials to know better, but they should have known better. Yeah. So this ended up happening on a regular basis after that. And I can tell you that I definitely became, I was teased constantly by him by how quickly I blushed. And he was very, he would, and he would, again, he would say stuff that contradicted everything. He would tell me to flirt with him. That was, he would say that all the time with me, flirt with me. He would make little faces at me, wanted me to make faces at him. He'd be in a room full of people and he'd zero in on me and blow me a kiss. And then I would blow him a kiss. And it was like, in my mind, I thought this is safe because this is like my grandfather that's kind of saving me from everything else and he's protecting me. And so this is not weird or anything. Like I didn't have anything to tell me that it was weird. And I think now, like I didn't connect that it was weird to hear him say flirt with me when I've been told my whole life flirting is so negative and so bad. And so there was, that was, you know, a thing happening. It got to the point where I knew the channels. I knew the times that these things were going on and he would just hand me the, the remote control. I mean, he would just say, you know, he knew that I, I knew what that meant, put it on for him, you know, and I knew put on Playboy channel, put on, you know, it was always one of these things. And And I worked really hard on not blushing. I don't know if I achieved it, but I really wanted to like show that I could watch this with a serious face and not be freaked out and not show that I was grossed out or weirded out or anything that I was totally okay with it. So I really worked hard on that to prove that. Mm -hmm. And also that he didn't, he was saying that even though he sent you to LA to be an actress, which he didn't, but that saying originally that being an actress would mean that you were going to be a slut and somehow promiscuous, right? None of this makes sense, right? None of it comes together. It's all up. Everything is like every day was opposite day. Right. And every conversation was opposite conversation. Anyway, so you were very familiar with all of this saying, oh, I put this stuff on all the time. And then what happened between the two of you? Well, so during this period of time, he started giving me jewelry pretty regularly. The very first piece of jewelry he gave me, he put it on my finger and he said that we were married in a past lifetime. And in this lifetime, we were supposed to heal the world together. I remember telling my friends, like laughing, like, what, what the hell does that mean? Like, it just seems so crazy, but I was like, oh, but look at this cool ring he gave me. You know, it was like, okay, there's something about there. I'm just not, I'm just not enlightened enough to understand what he meant by that, but it sounds kind of weird. So this stuff went on. I was just, you know, I was his, it was in his inner circle. I mean, I was always kind of in his inner circle, but also always used as someone that served others and, you know, kind of like almost in a way, like a servant, as I was also being given all these extras, you know. And um, when I turned 18, he was not in LA. He was out of town and he called me up. And by then I had moved to living at his home, not at the home he lived in, but at the estate where his wife actually lived. And I had been moved to working at the main corporate office that kind of was the corporate office of all the other 3HO businesses. I was, he always made me a receptionist. He said it was my karma. But anyway, I, he calls me up on my 18th birthday and he says, it's your birthday. I want to do something special for you. And I was like, I, you know, and by the time I moved from that lady's house in the garage to the estate, 
even though the situation wasn't that great as far as like I, they didn't really have a proper room for me or anything. I still slept in the living room and everything. I remember that first night of feeling like I'm in heaven, like, cause it was such a step up from being in a flea infested garage. And I um, was so grateful and I felt so much gratitude for him. Like he is the only one that cares about me. He's the only one that really truly loves me and wants the best for me. And so when he called me up on my 18th birthday and he said he wanted to get me a present, I said, you know, all I want to do is serve humanity and serve the guru and serve the Sikh religion. And, and he said, you know, no, 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 no. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're doing that. Yeah, yeah. Besides that, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, no, you've given me so much. You've given me a home. You've given me a job. You've given me, given me so much. You've helped me through all this problems that I went through with my parents. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. What do you want? And he's like, pick something that you want. And I said, I don't want anything. And he's like, how about, you know, I take you and buy you a really fancy jewelry set. And I said, no, 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 I'm fine. He's like, how about I take you on a shopping spree? You can get whatever you want. How about I take you on a trip to Hawaii, all these different things. And every time I would just say, no, sir, you did so much for me. And that was another thing of like a test of like, I can't, ask for anything. That's greedy. That's, you know, I'm supposed to serve selflessly. And so he finally goes, do you want a million dollars? And I said, no, I said, sir, I'm telling you, you've done so much for me. I don't need anything from you. I'm so grateful. All I want to do is serve. And he just finally accepted it. And that was that the entire staff ended up throwing me this really fancy birthday party. And he ended up sending me 18 long stem white roses as a birthday present because I had never asked for anything. And so once I turned 18, then, I mean, I'd already at 17 started doing his personal attendant duty, you know, going out with him to his lunches, carrying his bags. And you're basically just like a servant, but you know, you're supposed to dress up. I think another thing that we, about talking about how we dressed really conservatively when I started on his staff, he bought me heels. He bought me, he shot, he got me clothes at Victoria's Secrets. Like I was all of a sudden, I mean, if you look at the the pictures of me before and then after when I was on his staff, I was wearing little mini skirts and high heels because he used to tell me I had to be look five nine. He was very wanting me to look five nine. So he wanted me to wear heels. So at least I was five nine. But that was something I was told. I mean, there's even a picture of me right before he had his his triple bypass surgery. And I'm standing there with him and I'm wearing this skin tight top, this short little see-through skirt with like just very thin tights on with my full turban, <laughs> lots of jewelry, like I mean, it's just like the craziest thing that I went from wearing these very conservative clothes to when I was directly with him, he was buying me, I mean, these clothes were purchased by him and I was getting, I was wearing much more tighter, much more revealing clothes and wearing heels. And so it was like a whole different thing, but I just accepted it. I accepted like, this is how the special people get to wear. Like, and there was always a reason behind it. Like this person is very in their cell, you know, they're very into their ego and stuff. And, and you have to look a certain way and be more approachable. I don't know. It's just, it was all very confusing, but that's just what we accepted. And so after that, after I'd been doing duty, I got a call from one of the ladies on the staff who was his night attendant. And she said he personally wanted me to do a night duty for him. And that just kind of scared me a little bit because 
it wasn't really fear. It was more just kind of like, oh, like the idea of being completely alone with him at night just seemed very, I, I just felt very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of argued with her and she's like, look, I said, why can't somebody else do it? You know, I've never done it before. She's like, yeah, but you've done every other time of duty with him. And, you know, so now you to do night duty. And I said, well, you know, I don't want to. She said, well, he's specifically asking for you. And that's a big thing. You know, he's very particular about who he allows into his bedroom at night. So this is very special stuff. And again, everything was always kind of pushed on me. Like this is an honor. This is special. So I finally was like, okay, fine. I'll do it. And I think I wore like sweatpants, like a, you know, outfit or something to, cause I knew I was going to be up through the night with him, or at least I really didn't know what I was going to be up for. And I, got there. And another contradiction was how much he liked, you know, how much he pushed for women to have their head covered and their turbans on. He really liked my hair. I had very long hair and he would always comment on how beautiful my hair was and how he, you know, he would say stuff like if my hair looked like, didn't look thick a day, you know, he'd be like, what are you doing? We have to get your hair. It was like, it's like he took a personal interest in that, that was nice. And he wanted me to have that or something. So he would say stuff to me, like you can wear your hair in a braid. Oh, somebody going to meet him in a, in a setting would dress up to the nines. Here I am in casual lounge clothes and my hair done in a braid, like completely different thing. So I got there early and the woman that he lived with, who was one of his main uh, attendants, she kind of walked me through like, this is what's going to happen. He's going to, you know, you sit here. He likes to make phone calls to people. And, you know, just if he's sleeping, you should sleep. And there's a sheepskin on the ground and there's some shawls and just, you know, sleep because as soon as he's awake, he doesn't sleep much. Then you need to be wide awake to attend to him. And here's a a book on how you do CPR, (laughs) like just different things. You know, I'm literally coming in without anything. And then they're trying to quickly tell me how to do everything in a very short period of time. And so I, I went over there and he was asleep on his chair and I just sat in the living room while he slept. And I just sat there in darkness and quietness. and, And then all of a sudden he just kind of got up and started walking backwards. And I was just like, okay, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, we're going, here we go. You know, and I, we walked back into his bedroom and he just got onto his bed and went to sleep. And I was like, okay, that's fine. And so I just kind of laid there and I, I was, I was too nervous to sleep because I thought like, what if I fall asleep and then I miss when he needs me and, and stuff. So I kind of just laid there, but I couldn't sleep. And then all of a sudden, you know, after, I don't know, very long, he got up and he, um, he just went over and he started sitting at his altar and it looked like he was doing his bonnies, which is reading like, you know, seek scriptures. And so I just sat there and I just closed my eyes like, and like, I'm going to, you know, kind of take in the, the energy from, from it. And then afterwards he just went over to his little desk and he started saying, get this person on the phone. And there's a little, there was an address book there and I'd find their name, find their phone, I'd call them and then say, please hold for the sirsing sob and then hand the phone over to him. And then he would talk to somebody. And so that went on for a period of time. And then it was like, I knew that I was being relieved by someone else by 7 a.m. And I also was in charge of making his breakfast. So I had, um, I, I made his breakfast every day. Uh, that was another thing that he had me do, which was making all his teas and his tinctures and his meals and everything. And that had to be done early in the morning. So I was kind of like looking at the clock and I was like, okay, it's like five o'clock. I probably can leave here around six so that I can go get his breakfast going. And there's going to be someone coming at seven. And, and when he was done making his phone calls, he just kind of was all, all of a sudden very 
energetic and animated. And he finally kind of acknowledged me really. Like he's like, you know, all in this goofy kind of happy mood. And he jumps on his bed, like kind of like a child, you know, and I'm just kind of like smiling, like, okay, this isn't such a bad night. I made it through the night. I had my back to him and I'm like folding up blankets and kind of just preparing the room for me to leave and keep it and make sure it's all in order, you know? And then all of a sudden he just says, he just immediately, like, I don't know, it's hard to talk about, but you know, then he just says, um, you know, come over here. He said, come give me a kiss. And I just kind of stood there with my back to him and like kind of froze, like, did he just say what I think he said? And and everything that's going on from this point on is all in my head besides him speaking to me because I really tried to have a conversation with him in my head like I was saying to him stuff like so he kept saying to me you know come over and give me a kiss then he started telling me that I never that I I've never kissed anyone he was going to show me how to do it and like come over and make out with me let's kiss like we're in love you know, come on, you're, you know, you're my wife. Remember, like, cause he had been calling me his wife now for some time. And I stood there and I said, I'm fine where I am. I'm fine where I am. I just kept saying that, you know, I, I know I'm okay. And in my mind, I'm saying, what are you doing? You're better than this. Do you not, you don't really mean this. You're not really asking me to do this. And I'm also going like saying out, you know, in my mind to like speak good is like the 10th guru of the Sikh was Guru Gobind Singh. And he was known for like, kind of, you know, with swords and he fought lots of battles and he kind of, you know, he was against, you know, he fought against injustice. He fought against things that happened to people that, you know, weren't good. He fought to protect them. And I'm thinking, you know, you better protect me right now. I don't know what's going on. And, but I kept saying to him, you know, keeping my, you know, I'm fine. I'm fine where I am. And my legs felt like they were like locked into place. Like I didn't even feel like I could move. And I was just shaking. And I, he started telling me that this is what all his wives did. And I needed to come get in bed. He's patting the bed. And I'm, and I just, and then I still even had the thing like, why are you doing this stuff? I mean, why are you thinking these negative thoughts about him why are you thinking that he's saying this to you he doesn't actually mean that he's just being sweet to you and he's being like a grandfather he just wants to you to get in bed and give him a little hug because he loves you and this isn't weird why are you letting your mind in the gutter like this is all in my mind and so finally I just started I was shaking I was I you know tears are coming down my face I was just like I think it finally kind of was like like my hand was like shaking like really bad and he just after a while it just stopped it's like he just changed his tune he changed his voice changed and he just said it's okay you're fine nothing's gonna happen don't be scared and then he said uh, he's and I turned around and he said oh baby you know why are you so like what's wrong you know oh no 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 everything's fine and i walked over and i just had my eyes on the door like i need to get out of here and as i'm walking by he kind of leaned over and kissed me on my forehead and then i just walked out of the room and i remember like walking down the street that morning and i'm thinking the sense of like what just happened did what just happened happen? And I'm thinking, I will never tell anyone about this ever because it's probably nothing. And of course it's nothing. 
And if I say anything, it will make him look so bad. And people will, you know, and people will think, will think badly of him and I need to protect him. And I just remember thinking, I will not tell anybody about this. And then after that, he told me that I needed to come by every evening and give him a hug and kiss goodnight because he said that I was scared of him and I needed to get over my fear of him and I need to get more comfortable being close to him. And so I did. I would go over every evening and give him a hug and kiss goodnight. <laughs> I didn't say anything about it for years and years and years. And it, it haunted me. It was, I would get angry. I would be in the car and I'd be driving. And all of a sudden these memories would come into my head and I'd be like, yelling in the car by myself going like why did you do this to me why and then I would say if nothing happened take these memories from me so I don't have to think that you know I don't like and I get angry at myself for feeling like that it could have been anything weird and I remember I was just like I mean I'd been married to my husband for 13 years before I said anything to him and when I said it to him I prefaced it with yeah, I know that women who have made accusations against him, I know they're all lying because, you know, I was in the room alone with him and he tested me and nothing happened. And I started telling, and, and I remember him going, but what if you had gotten in bed with him? What if you had given him a kiss? Have you ever thought about that? I'm like, well, I didn't. And like, and I'd be like angry at him for even like, why are you trying to make more than it is, you know? And it really wasn't until I put my daughter in that, in those rooms and it was putting my daughter in a situation when she's 17 16 living you know homeless 17 being told the dreams that she, or 16 being told her dreams were going to amount to her being a prostitute or, or a 17 being forced to watch or you know being told that they had to watch porn on a regular basis and being told to you know and i was just like wait even if it was a freaking test, I would not want my daughter to go. No, she shouldn't have, she would, like, I would not be okay with my daughter going through that. And that was kind of when I finally had to come to terms with, okay, I need to look at that young girl that was then and realize she shouldn't have had to go through those things. And that, that isn't actually how a spiritual teacher should be acting, or that isn't actually how a grandfather should be acting. And that really isn't how anyone should be acting. And so it really started me on the process of trying to understand my life and allowing myself to stop covering up all the things that I've seen as like, don't get into the negativity. And it's like, no, I need to actually face my life so that I can not bring this trauma any further into my life and, and, and into my kid's life, which I have so much sadness that it took me so long and that I, in some ways, I've already put this on my children. And that is really painful for me to think that I ignored it for so long. He was how old at the time that this was happening? This happened in spring of 93. And I, I was 18 when the, when that situation happened he was born in 1929 <laughs> um well, that's 64 okay so he was 64 at the time okay oh my goodness so i think about how many times you've had to accept something that shouldn't have been accepted that you had to go be fine with something or see it as something positive that the way that things were crafted in your mind about the that it was an honor is something that is, I think, so cruel to do that you 
then feel like you can't be upset, that you need to feel not only grateful, but indebted to this person who is giving you this honor. It's very, very confusing. I'm so glad that you are telling the story now. I know that, you know, you went on to marry this man who you had a crush on from an early age, which actually is having a dream come true. Glad that you were able to live that out. I know that you might have to do it in a very shortened version, but just thinking about control that you were still under on the day of your wedding. From the time that he asked me when I was 16, he actually called me and said, who do you have a crush on? And I thought it meant, oh, tell him now and then he'll engage you to that person. You know, so I told him and for immediately he responded with, don't be around him. He's not good for you. And it was really weird because up until then, my husband was kind of like, you know, a golden boy in the community. You know, he was one of the very first people born in the community. He was considered someone that was constantly being told, you're going to be the next city sing-song, which was the grand title of YB. And so I was really strange to all of a sudden hear like this very devout, very good, very sweet guy. I was now being considered like, don't be around him. But I saw it as like, he's just trying to protect me from relationships because I'm too young. And so when, when all of these things started happening, I just started, I remember it was actually a friend of mine who basically was just like, you know, you know, you two like each other, you guys should just tell each other. And, and, you know, and in our community, if you like each other, it means get married. Like, you know, you don't date, you don't, (laughs) you don't get to know each other. You just get married. And so we decide, I told him in the summer of 1994 that I liked him and that I wanted to marry him. And he said, I feel the same way. So we went to YB to tell him and um, he did not seem pleased. And it was very confusing for me, you know, and I didn't understand why, because I thought that he wanted me to be happy and marry someone that I wanted to marry. And, you know, I, I thought he wanted the best for me. So I was, I didn't understand. And I thought that maybe, I, you know, he made it seem like I had let him down. And so then we ended up having a pretty rushed engagement, which is very typical in our community back then was like, you know, get engaged and married the next day. We ended up getting married, you know, 28 days later. And the day before my wedding, I went to him and I just wanted him to like, you know, give me some like loving attention. You're getting married tomorrow. You're my granddaughter. And I'm so happy for you. And he was like in this very bad mood and he was very irritated. And he said he would not give me his blessing. And he said that I had betrayed him and that I was marrying and that I was supposed to be with him and that I had made a commitment to be with him. And I was his wife. And why was I doing this? And I did not put those things together in any literal sense. I just didn't understand. I kept thinking, no, I'm still with serving you. I'm still going to serve the community. Not only that, you get both of us now, you know? And so I didn't understand why he kept telling me that I betrayed him. But that day, the morning of my wedding, I woke up in so much conflict just of like, maybe I shouldn't have gotten what I wanted. Maybe this is greedy of me. Maybe this is the wrong way to do it. And I should have been patient and let YB make every plan for me. And so I, you know, I got dressed and it was a you know very hot day in July 31st in, in summer in New Mexico. And my mom was like, let's drive over to where the Gawar is, where the wedding's going to happen. And I said, no, I want to walk. And I just felt like I needed to punish myself. I needed to put myself through something that was going to make YB realized how much I loved him and that I was sorry if I was betraying him. So I walked in the heat in my wedding dress down the highway that's now named after him. Oh, wow. 
yeah, should be taken down. But anyway, uh, you know, and I cried my entire wedding. People called me an Indian bride because a lot of, you know, Indian women that are forced into marriages there sometimes cry. And, uh, and it was like, you know, and I remember, you know, my father saying to me, are you okay? And I was like, you know, just leave me alone. And my mom's like, what's going on? I said, you won't understand. Like, I was just kind of snapping at everybody. And he was very confused by the whole thing. You know, he was, he didn't understand why I was crying. He kept thinking like, don't you want to marry me? And his family was very angry at me. They felt like I had embarrassed them. And I think they never really forgave me for that. And you know, and then YB refused. He said he wouldn't come to my wedding. He didn't. He he kept that, and so he came after the wedding, and then he proceeded to tell me that I had embarrassed him by crying at the wedding, and and basically, I just remember sitting there in my mind, going, "What can I do to punish myself more? Like I don't understand what you want from me. I'm I'm crying because I thought you didn't want me to be happy because." I'm supposed to have a miserable life because I didn't do what you wanted. And so I was so confused by all of that. And he had full control over mine and my husband's lives. And he wouldn't let us live together. He constantly talked to me about how horrible he was and how I had betrayed him and how he couldn't marry, believe I married such an egotistical man. And, you know, he told me that he was going to have affairs on me and that he was going to, that he didn't really love me. And, um, he also would tell me stuff like if he, you can never say no to him in sex, otherwise he'll become very violent and angry with you. I thought like feeling like you were being raped was the way you were supposed to have sex. That's what I understood it. And luckily I never had a, I was never married to someone that, you know, that didn't make any sense to him. Um, I mean, Sarah has been like extremely patient and loving, and I don't honestly think any other man would have put up with the emotional turmoil that we went through and that I put him through also because I was constantly getting conflicting calls from YB about, you know, stuff. And then I would turn on him. Like I would, everything would be fine. And he said, you know, we would be fine. And then all of a sudden you'd get a call and then you would start telling me you want a divorce or telling me that I had made, you had made a huge mistake by marrying me. And, and I was just like, what is going on? And I, I, just a couple hours ago, you and I were telling each other how we're so happy we're together and we love each other. So it was this constant thing throughout our marriage. And it really hasn't been until, you know, it's, it's like, if that love wasn't strong, and by the way, we were told love was not important. So I remember even publicly telling people, oh yeah, I'm not in love with him. I just, we're married as a wedding and love isn't really, love is an emotion because love is a negative, you know? And so I think that if we didn't truly have that love for each other and that desire to like really like in the end, I, there's nowhere, there's no one I ra- would rather talk to or laugh with or tell something to than him. If I didn't have that, it wouldn't have lasted. It's, it's through all that it's been, it's amazing that it did last, but I'm grateful and glad that it did. And I, and he's been so patient and all of this stuff coming up has healed our marriage in so many ways because it's really helped us understand why these things have been coming up for so long, where all these emotional things were coming from, where all these you know, hidden stuff where it was coming from and why it was there. And, and so it just became a thing. Like if he, if he propped you up, everyone propped you up. If he put you down, then everyone, like people would say stuff like, I think you're a really intelligent person. I think you're really smart. I think you're really talented, but he doesn't think that way. So maybe I'm not seeing something he does. And maybe I should just say he's the master. He knows. Wow. Okay. So just to finish up, I think there are so many things 
that I could go back to. I mean, so many parts of your story that are ours that we could get into all the details. What I am so struck by is how much you had to make sense of things, how much that is true for so many people who I work with, so many people who are listening to this podcast where they the brain wants to have things make sense. And when there is a conflict or cognitive dissonance, it's very uncomfortable. So we make things make sense. And I think controllers really benefit from that, that we make it make sense. I am so happy that you're with someone who is uh, is so kind and so loving and so different from the way he was portrayed to be, in fact, quite the opposite. And I hope for you to have a, a future that makes sense, where you get to follow a course of action that you set for yourself and that you also don't have people yelling at you from all sides for all different reasons. I mean, I just go back to the story of you needing to make that call when you were working in this little the daycare and you have to deal with being told the news about your parents, being told it's a gift by YB for your birthday and trying to make sense of that. And that he's the one who told you to make the call. Then you get yelled at for being on the phone by the person who he had you go live with without you being even told that that's what you were going to be doing. And that's the job that you were going to be having because you were supposed to be an actress. I mean, just, just dissecting these moments where I could imagine you just say, okay, like um, mentally I'm out. I'm going to go on automatic pilot. Can't make sense of any of this. I'm just doing it wrong. Whatever it is, it seems to always be happening and none of it makes sense. So I like that you are now in a in a realm, in a home where you're not getting yelled at. People aren't being yelled at, where there's talking, where there is sharing, where it's calm, and again, where it makes sense. So I haven't often wished that for people, but I think it's a good one here to wish you a life that makes sense. So thank you. Thank you for sharing what happened to you and you know, you're, you're a good person and you should have only good things. And I'm so sorry you went through all of that. And thank you for your time, really. It's good to speak and let it go and not hold on to it. One more thing before you go. There are times when you meet people who you find to seem very calm put together, like they've had an easy, stress-free life. (laughs) And you would never know what they have been through, what they have survived, what they have needed to deal with that was beyond what anyone should have to deal with. And Sat Pavan is one of those people. You meet her and you say, Hmm, this is a woman who really knows where she's going. And she seems like she is kind of cool and collected. And truth is, she is. But after hearing her story, you're going to wonder how she's able to kind of hold things together. What is true about a lot of people who have been through experiences like this is that they've learned how to seem outwardly fine. That's not to say that Sat Pavan is not 
you know, fine at times inside, but you learn to compartmentalize so that you can survive, so that you can deal with things that are beyond what you should have had to dealt with developmentally, emotionally, physically. Satpavan's story is a story of being pulled and pushed and deposited in places by herself at very young ages and having to fend for herself. And it's also a story of neglect and the times that she has talked about crying for her parents, crying for her mother, and not being able to be connected physically, emotionally at those times with her caregiver. It can break your heart. I'm so glad that she's having a chance now to parent her own kids in a very different way. One of the things that happens when you come across someone like Satpavan also is that it becomes hard at times for people like her to want to tell their story because, first of all, it's traumatizing. You have to go back into the memories. You have to go back into visualizing what things were like, feeling what they were like. There are still many stories that she hasn't told and she doesn't have to. You can get a flavor, enough of a flavor, from hearing even just some of the little hints she gives here and there about just how bad it was. But also, people who have been in these environments often learn how to downplay how bad it was, how to not feel how traumatic it was. And when people then avail themselves of therapy, or talking to other former members, they can sometimes go through a bit of kind of mm, realization trauma where you get a sense of really what happened. And you get a sense also of understanding why you are experiencing what you're experiencing now and why you're having these after effects, why you're scared of certain things, why you can't take compliments because you just don't feel like you're a good enough person to deserve them, et cetera, et cetera. So being able to talk about your experiences is not something you have to do. And I want to be able to reiterate that for people listening. With podcasts, people sometimes do feel kind of pushed, like somehow they're doing something wrong by not telling their story. I think that Satpavan's way of telling her story is important, but also the timing of it. It meant that she felt ready. And so no one should really feel pushed to share more than they wanted or to share sooner than they felt comfortable or safe doing so. One of the things that also is important to mention is that she now is able to look at some of these experiences and find them so baffling. How could this have happened? And why is it that the things that she was feeling that were natural were seen as so wrong? The fact that she was called selfish and obnoxious, like she was a troublemaker when she was crying for her mother, you can only imagine. You can only imagine what that's like because then you are blaming the victim for being annoying, but you're putting them in this situation you're the one who's making them cry, and then you're mad at them for crying. It's like the old adage, you know, don't let me give you something to cry about, which I've never quite understood. But what I think is also important is for someone like Satpavan and anyone else who's been in this situation to know that 
the feelings that they were feeling, just as I talked about at the beginning of our conversation today, that were difficult, were just inconvenient. I keep thinking of the word inconvenient. It's inconvenient for the people in charge to have to deal with someone's emotions. It's inconvenient for them to have to deal with a crying child. And how about this as an alternative to making a child feel shamed for crying? Why not decide not to put them in a situation that's traumatizing them? Why not decide to step back and say, you know, this thing that we do to kids seems to make them cry, seems to make them upset. And instead of immediately going to, what is wrong with all these kids? It would be wonderful, so wonderful, if so many cult groups, so many abusive parents also would say, what's wrong with what I'm doing to that person that's making them react this way? Not what they need to change, but what do I need to change in the way I'm interacting with them? So growing up, having your natural feelings and your natural reactions that were spurred on by the group, put down, criticized, and that, you know, you're shamed for it. You become an adult who has a hard time knowing if it's okay to feel what you're feeling. And I'm very glad that Satpavan is able to be more engaged with her feelings. And it's not a comfortable thing but it is an important thing. And coming to the point where you tell your story is also where you get to a point, if that's your choice, again, it's always a choice. You don't have to tell your story, but you're saying, you know what? I'm able to connect with that feeling that something was wrong. I'm able to connect with that feeling of anger that's propelling me to want to tell that story. I'm connecting with that feeling of resentment or just that feeling that, I deserve, I deserve to be able to have my story heard. Feeling deserving of something is something quite foreign to people raised in environments like this. So I'm very happy for Sapavan to be at this place in her life as she is progressing in her healing. And I really look forward to having you hear part two of my conversation with her next week. Take care. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.